Kia and welcome to the special edition of NZSA Live. The following content was recorded at our 2018 National Writers Forum. We're releasing it as part of NZSA Connect to help New Zealand authors and writers stay connected during the COVID-19 national lockdown. Today's podcast features audio from the panel discussion writing series, Challenges and Considerations. The panel featured Mandy Hager, Kyle Mooburn, Vanda Simon, and was chaired by Anna McKenzie. Kenzie. I'm the author of both series and standalone YA and adult fiction, including the Dystopian Sea Wreck trilogy and the Elgard fantasy duet. I'd like to welcome you to the series on the challenges and considerations of writing series and introduce you to our illustrious panel. Uh, Mandy Hager, at the far end, is the award-winning author of more than 10 YA and adult novels, including the acclaimed Blood of the Lamb trilogy and the Ash duet. Mandy Tudor's uh, novel writing at Fitterea undertakes mentoring and assessment, has been awarded the Beetson Fellowship, Catherine Mansfield Fellowship, and was writer-in-residence at Waikato University. In the middle, we have Vanda Simon. Vanda is the author of the renowned Sam Shepard series. Dunedin-based, in addition to writing crime, she has a, uh, she's a radio talk show host, mother of two teenagers, recently completed a PhD thesis on the utilisation of science in crime fiction, and is a competitive fencing champion. Uh-huh. Kyle Mewburn next to me has written four multi-book junior fiction series, including Dragon Knight and Dinosaur Rescue, as well as many award-winning standalone junior fiction and picture book titles. Who hasn't heard of Kiss Kiss Yuck Yuck? Originally from Brisbane, Kyle has lived in New Zealand for nearly 30 years. She's built her own house, aims for self-sufficiency, and is the immediate past president of the Society of Authors, the initiator and principal sponsor of this National Writers' Forum. I'll start with a question for each of you. Vanda, crime is a genre where series are particularly common and successful from Agatha Christie to uh, Ian Rankin. What is it about crime that works so well in the series format? I think with crime fiction, Series formats lend themselves very well because you can build up a very loyal followership and often with crime fiction and detective fiction in particular, it's very character driven and people get absolutely invested in these characters. Um, And one of the things that you can then do with these characters is, of course, is develop them over a period of time. So, uh, you know, when looking at crime fiction, you you think of your John Rebus's and um, all these wonderful detectives who um, have characteristics of their own and in many ways, um, and you have to be a bit careful that you don't let this happen, the character becomes more important or bigger than the events themselves. So um, your successful crime writers will marry this combination of having a very character-driven book uh, or series, but also um, with each particular standalone novel, um, addresses issues that they may want to address or has, has something that they want to say or, or just um, an idea that they, they want to follow. So, yeah, crime fiction in particular, very, very um, good for series. 
And did you know when you um, began your first title, Overkill, did you know that you were writing a series at that stage? Uh, I, yes. Um, I'd always intended to write a series, um, and that was reinforced when, um, when I was developing my character, Sam Shepard, um, when she sort of appeared. Now, I should probably preface this by saying, when I first started writing Overkill, I had started writing it from a perspective of a male detective. Um, and it wasn't quite working for me. Uh, in fact, one day, and I can't remember the exact circumstances, but my husband did such a dumb nut thing that I caught, I cannot comprehend or understand the man I am married to. How the hell do I think I'm going to write a novel or anything from the perspective of a man? So I swapped this round and thought, okay, let's try this from the perspective of a woman. And as soon as I did that, this character, Sam Shepard, arrived pretty much full of fully formed, saying, what the hell took you so long? And I knew from that moment that she was going to be an interesting enough person to be able to carry a series. So when I um, had completed the novel and um, done all the polishing and had the best work I thought I had and was getting bold enough to present it to publishers, one of the things I did was in a Kiwi bolshy kind of way in my covering letter say, oh, this is the first in a series of novels I'm planning to write about Sam Shepard. Um, and that worked. Thanks. Mandy, am I right in thinking that you planned The Crossing as a trilogy, yeah. but the Ash duet came about in an entirely different way? Yes. Do you want to talk about those two processes? Okay. Um, so the trilogy, which is called the Blood of the Lamb trilogy, um, I did plan it. I planned it as a kind of thinking about a three-act structure, but also um, it, it's kind of about it's about power and control issues, and it's about um, the way that you can hold power over faithful populations. So, it's a, so there's quite a big theme of religion in it, and um, also racism and refugees and gender and a whole lot of things, but. The religious one, which kind of is the main plot story because it's about, it's a kind of post-apocalyptic cult. Um, I planned it so that the first book was kind of, if you if you wanted to think about it on a meta level, it was like the, the fall, so getting the knowledge, so my main protagonist discovering what is going on in this world and needing to escape it or leaving paradise because it's set on a small Pacific island. The middle one, um, which is literally called Into the Wilderness, about kind of, you know, like Christ going out into the wilderness. And that book actually takes you off um, to, to a place that's like Australia, talking about um, detention camps and the way refugees are treated. And then the third one is called Resurrection, and it talks about... Um, finding your power and being reborn and being able to go back to where you came from and, um, yeah, and finding your voice and asserting your power. So I guess that the three books really fitted with the story that I wanted to tell in that way, whereas um, I wrote The Nature of Ash, I can't even remember what year now, do you have it written down? Um, maybe like around 2000 and 
12, 11, something like that, and I did think that that was a standalone book, and that's set slightly in the future, and it's a political thriller, and it's set here in New Zealand, and um, there were some things that I really wanted to talk about in that, and I thought that I'd kind of covered what I wanted to talk about, but um, it started to kind of nag at me that there was more I wanted to say, and one of the things I wanted to talk about was... Um, that it's all very well to, um, it's about kind of fighting political corruption and it's also about how you deal with a war, a proxy war breaking out over the top of you, which I've set in New Zealand, but which could be Yemen or Palestine or any of those countries to try and get young people to think about what it would actually be like to be there. Um, but I wanted to think about it. It's all very well to kind of end a book saying, you know, yay, we're going to have a revolution. But what do you do when you actually take down a government? Do you just replace it with the next kind of thing that comes up into the void? Or if you, I wanted to talk about how you might maybe do that differently. And also the, the characters kept kind of sitting with me and nagging at me. So, um, so it was a surprise sequel. But, but one that I, yeah, I really enjoyed doing, and I'm really glad I did. So, crime right. fiction, YA fiction. Kyle, you write junior fiction. I do, very junior. <laughs> Bottom of the barrel, first, junior. First, first chapter book. First chapter book. Yes. Uh, do, are there are there things that differentiate it? Why why does that series format work well for that age group of reader? Um, for, for a start, I think it's because junior readers want something to hook onto. Once they've hooked onto something. They want to keep going as long as they, once they like a character, they want to keep reading about that character. And all my series have been stopped after six or eight books. And I constantly get emails from parents and kids themselves saying, when's the next one? When's the next one? I say, well, I can't write anymore. The publisher doesn't want them. <laughs> and they say, no, but you can write, you can write one for me. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, I do. Yeah, I know. But um, what was the question again? Sorry. Just why it appeals particularly to that age group, and if there are yeah. specific challenges and advantages around that. Yeah, um, but no. What's the disadvantages if publishers get bored with a given idea and want a new thing coming along? I mean, marketing teams yeah. are always looking for the newest thing, aren't they? I mean, from a, from a writing perspective, it's actually quite difficult to come up with a concept which can hold its weight over a series. It's easy to come up with a one-off story and you think, what a great story, but once you've set it in stone and it's always set in concrete, and junior fiction is very prescriptive in a way, once you have a, your first one, that everyone has to follow that exactly, even the title. So once you, yeah, so it's quite complicated to get it to, to go beyond four. Four is the sort of standard, they normally book you in for four, Let's actually talk about that for all of us in terms of the writing the standalone book or, you know, with, with in your head, the framework of the overarching band. Are you a burning answer there? No, actually it was a burning question for oh. Kyle. Um, oh. No, for the four. Is part of that related to the fact that because you write for such young readers that they grow out of that age band as the books are coming out? <clears throat> yeah, that's one of the problems, yeah. That's why you have to keep putting new series and that's why that's that's my sole motivation for writing new series is my reader keeps growing up and I keep telling kids at school I think there's two things I hate about kids one is they're just snotty 
And second is that they keep growing up and going out of my readership. <laughs> Surely a new lot come along. They do, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> it's totally different answers from all of you, I guess, on this, but do you approach the writing of each book as if it is one book? Do you just write one book at a time, or do you have to keep the whole of the series, whether it's three or eight, in your head within that process of writing the one book? Oh, I'll start again. Um, I think for me, because I write crime fiction as opposed to a trilogy where um, you know, you've got very um, specific things that you're wanting to happen across, um, I have the ability to be able to do each novel be a standalone book in its own right. Um, but in saying that, um, because I have a main character who is running through all of these novels, I have the ability, because I know I'm writing a series, to have arcs that are going to um, travel through the novels over the series, and that may be you know, short arcs, um, but also some that I'm in for the long haul. For example, um, in my series, um, the Sam Chibich series, I put an arc in that I started in book one that completed in book four. Uh, but um, crime fiction does lend itself to being you know, specifically standalone, and also your readers expect in crime fiction for a novel to stand on its own feet, so that if someone came along and just picked up the fifth book in the series, they'd be able to get a really enjoyable reading experience from that. But if you've got readers who've started from book one and worked their way through, they're getting that enjoyable experience, but also payoffs for the reward of being um, loyal readers who've been there from the get-go. You're, you're a very optimistic writer. And oh, to imagine optimistic. that these arcs are going to actually end up manifesting somewhere. I, sort of my experience was I had this sort of secret going on in my Dragon Knight series, which wasn't supposed to be revealed until book number 25. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then at a certain point, um, suddenly my illustrator, my illustrator, he actually revealed it in one of the illustrations. I'm thinking, what the <laughs> So, but yeah, it's sort of, I've learnt as well from junior fiction, you can't assume everything has to be self-contained and it's just the character and the, and the context keeps going. You can't have an overarching, because the publishers will just kill it. Yeah. That reading in both directions, that would work with your junior fiction, you know, a kid might pick up any book in the yeah. series and then eagerly go back and read the others, and it, so it can't, you're saying there are advantages to reading it in order, but you can read in any direction. Yeah. Does that work for the YA stuff, Mandy, or is it better to actually read it in order? Um, I think it's better to read it in order, but um, I know that that doesn't always happen. Um, so if I go and look at um, reviews on Goodreads, somebody might say, you know, I read number two or number three, and now I'm going to go back and read number one. So that can still happen. But, um, it, you know, when you're planning, when you know that you're writing three books as a discrete thing and that there won't be more at the end, then I guess you think about um, how you're going to pace out seeding certain information in, and you do that, of course, across the three books. So so you co I couldn't have written them out of order, for instance, because I needed to kind of build it up in my head and for it to evolve and grow as I was going along. So, yeah, and it's, and it's hard. Um, with Ash, it, it was quite a it was quite a gap between writing it, and so it took me a while because I'd spent three years writing Eloise, and you know, in the head of a French 12th century French nun, and then suddenly I'm back in an 18-year-old boy, 
um, it took me a while to kind of get my head back into that voice. So I actually had to sit and read my own book again and analyze it and take notes on what I had because I couldn't remember and then think about how, how I would be able to refer back to it and how I would join it together, you know, how you reveal what happened in the last book because it's so long that it's unlikely people were, you know, picketing the bookshop saying, where does it out? So um, I think that that makes for a whole different thing. I think if I was going to write a trilogy again, which I don't imagine I'll do, um, I would write all three books before they came out because I think people get impatient um, for the next book to come out if they love it. Is there a perfect release time? Is there a schedule that works in each of the genres that we work in? I mean, inter inter interestingly, I was just thinking while you were talking, and Vander as well, um, my readers invariably think their favourite one is number one in the series. If you ask them which one was your favourite, it's always number one. Yeah. Because they introduce the characters, and, and I'm thinking, you know, by five I'm really hitting my stride here. <laughs> and they're going, that's the best one. Well, and I, and I think that brings up another one of the issues is that, you, you know, you, you get more publicity for the first one because it's a new idea, and, and the second one gets, you know, a little bit less, and then the third one gets a little bit less, unless, you know, it really, unless it's the Hunger Games or something. So, um, so that's why I would say if I did it again, I would, I would write them all first so that maybe they came out at three-month intervals or something so that people didn't get too impatient or that they all came out at once so that if somebody really loved it, then they could just carry on to the next one. You know, and I think of um, my husband read all the Game of Thrones books before I told him that the last one hadn't been written and he was really pissed off with me, you know. Um, so, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I just think I wouldn't approach it in the same way. And, and, and remember feeling frustrated that as, this, as, the, as it went on, the reviewing was less and the, and, and the opportunities were less um, because it was, not a, it was not fresh to people. It was seen as part of something that was three years ago. I suppose in some way um, you could to find that balance between um, getting a book out there frequently enough that um, your readers are going to be, you know, they've finished it last time, they've had a wee bit of a race, they've read some other things, and then, oh, they see the next one is out. Um, but also you don't want them coming out so often that you get um, reader exhaustion, as it were, um, or, and it's like, um, it suits the binge readers. So I know, um, like you're saying with the Game of Thrones, my children were of an age that all the Harry Potter books were already published, so they could just sort of start at number one and then not sleep for three months. Um, but uh, in industry standard for crime fiction, they're expecting um, one book a year. Yeah, I, I remember talking to some uh, two guys who were writing sci-fi for the ebook market mainly in America, and they said that in America it was considered that in that market the prime delivery rate was one every six weeks, Lord. which is why two of them were writing them, so they could take turns. I'm still thinking one book every 12 weeks, they're not the best yeah. books ever written, they yeah. can't possibly be. So one a year seems a far more reasonable thing, but I totally hear you, Mandy, on the write them all at once and then release them at whatever rate, but don't be under pressure to from a publisher to, you know, push one out quickly because now's the date that they've put aside for that and if you're not quite ready to write it or... Which is why I probably won't do it again because it's such a huge investment of effort before you know whether it would even get accepted. So, 
I probably won't. I mean, Sorry with, to depress you if you're thinking of it. <laughs> the thing with junior fiction, of course, is my books are read in within a day. Avid readers get my book and read it, and they read it again and again and again and again, and, and it's basically targeted for a year as sort of normal. And you think in those three months, my reader has read it so many times, or not, and if they don't, if they don't, if you can't maintain interest, then by the time the second one comes out, they've moved on to Andy Griffiths, as everyone does. <laughs> I, guess, I, say, I guess what this sort of points out is that you actually need to know your market, your readership, and who you're targeting to find out what you're getting yourself in for. In terms of that holding the reader's attention, how do each of you make sure that the, the standalone book does entice, you know, you're enticed to pick up the next one? What, within your genre, is the technique for that, if you can summarise it so tidily? <laughs> Poo. <laughs> Farts. Yeah, no. It's actually quite complex, yeah. For me, it's the question of rereadability, which is not for adults. If you can't get a kid to reread it, then you've lost them. It doesn't matter. So however you do that, and I sort of just pile in jokes and, and different themes and... Yeah, action. I mean, the action gets them from one from the beginning to the end. It's the themes and the subtle social commentaries which get them to reread, and the jokes and the puns get them to reread three or four times, and which is completely different for you guys. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say that a it has to be like emotional investment, so it's the reader engaging with the characters to such an extent that they want to continue that journey, that they feel like they were part of it. So, yeah, so they've, they've really felt like they've lived that story. And, and also keeping in mind how you end it, so you leave it open-ended. So at the end of the first book, it ends as they're leaving the island, so that you know that there's something. And at the end of the second book, they're actually about to go back to the island. So in both cases, you know that you could leave it at that point, that it kind of ties up that story problem, but that there is more that could happen as a result. But in the end, I know for me, it, if I'm going to read more than one in a series, it's either because I've really engaged with the reader, uh, with the character, and care about them and want to know what happens, or I've really engaged with the big ideas that I find really fascinating and I want to see how they play out. I think for my books also, it's um, the reader investing in the character, and because I know this. And as a reader, it's also very important to get people coming back to your series is that that character is growing in their own right as a person. You can't have that character being static in the same and responding the same way in every book, otherwise it gets repetitive and predictable. Um, you need your characters are the real people. You know, they need to grow in every experience they have, the experience they had in the previous book, where um, you know, whether they were injured or people they cared for, something happened to them, or you know, it was a life-turning event for them. That is then going to be reflected in the next book and how they um, have developed as a person. And I think that's also one of the things that keeps your readers coming back to your series. It's interesting as well, the, um, what these guys do, I have to do on a sort of a totally different level. It's still about creating investment in characters, but in a different way. And um, as a special treat, how many, how many of your readers have ever told you they've dressed up as your character and gone to a fancy dress party? I'm in this now. I've had a couple. Oh, really? Slightly worried. Which character? 
the fantasy series. Oh, oh, I get a lot of args. Args. Garg, as in the cave boy. <laughs> a lot of people go as. What about yeah. cliffhangers? What about cliffhangers as an ending? Is, it, is a cliffhanger an appropriate way to end a, a, a novel, a standalone novel that's part of a series? What's our view on that? No. Is anybody's thinking of doing it? No, not for young kids. They don't, they don't like thread, loose threads. I think it depends how you define a cliffhanger. Oh. So if it's a cliffhanger from an action perspective, no. Because, um, you know, you, your reader's got to feel that they've gotten to the end of this book and that there's a satisfying conclusion for them. But um, if you're doing a series, you know, you could perhaps leave a little slightly emotional cliffhanger or um, a, 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 a subplot um, life event cliffhanger. But for the actual story itself, you know, for the plot of that particular, for example, mystery um, case to be solved, you can't leave cliffhangers because your readers will hate you forever. Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that. I think it's probably dependent on the book a bit, and I think sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. I personally don't. I don't like huge cliffhangers because I just find them frustrating. And, and I, when I read them, it kind of feels a bit like the writer's just run out of steam and doesn't know how to actually finish it. But um, but I do think there's room to leave a kind of <sighs> moment which is, oh my God, where is this going to take them? I think that's fine, as long as you know that you are then going to take them somewhere. Yeah, yeah, and I, th and I think the time frame is quite yeah. important yeah. too. But I remember being horrified when my children were reading a um, YA book that ended with one character bleeding to death in the arms of the other. Um, and then they had to wait a year for the next story. And I, I think that's a really dangerous thing to do. I'm, I guess I'd urge anybody writing series to stay away from that. I mean, it's fine between chapters because you can quickly get the resolution, but I'd be really cautious about leaving things too unresolved in a, in a series. I mean, I had uh, my number six in Dragon Knight. I had them going off to a different environment um, in the land of the barbarians in the north, and then the series got cancelled. So... <laughs> What's going to happen? No idea. I think you need one on your website to see. Okay, what about backstory? Backstory is a, um, a real chestnut for the series. You know, how much backstory do you put in? You don't want to put in so much that you drive your loyal readers mad, but you don't want to put in so little that a, a reader picking up a book that's not the first book for the first time, or indeed someone who actually they're all out, and so they're reading them in a rush in a binge, and so they don't actually need the backstory because it's still fresh in their mind, and it's a balancing act, isn't it? Any, any thoughts to share on that? Um, in my case, I've always had like a synopsis of the book before at the start of the book. Like a prologue? Yeah, no, no, not like a prologue, but because the prologue's a different thing, but like a um, book one and just a synopsis so that you could go and read what had happened if you want to, or you cannot read it if you don't want to. So it's separate. It's a bit like, you know, you, they put teaser chapters in the back. It's the same kind of thing. So you can go there and kind of discover the bones of what's happened before. But you still have to um, put a little bit of backstory in, even if you do that, because, you you know, it is just the bones of the story and it doesn't generally it generally covers the action, not the character stuff. So then it's a balancing act about how much you put in. And um, 
I, I found that with Ash particularly, and I think in a way because I was trying to remind myself what it was about, so I put quite a lot in and then pulled quite a lot out, and hopefully the balance is about right. But it is a tricky one, and, and part of it I think is a publisher's decision too. They had their own kind of certain ideas on how to handle it. Um, for my books, um, the Sam Shepard ones, I do put in wee bits of backstory, but they'll be minute, you know, it might be one or two sentences placed in the context of something that is happening at that particular time. Um, for example, when she um, finds she's got a flat tyre out in the middle of the WAPS, and she, you know, makes, will make a comment about, you know, she had brothers and they changed the tyre for her, but she realised she'd never changed the tyre herself. So just very small things in context, because I know as a reader, I find it really jarring if, um, you've got all this action happening and suddenly the author wanders off into a backstory that lasts for you know, a page, half a page, you know, page and a half. It's just way too much. So I tend to like to think of um, backstory as being little vignettes or glimpses, but they have to be relevant to what's happening at the time. Yeah, no, I don't really do backstory as such. <laughs> I, I, um, I, I word count. I know, I'm running out of words as soon as I start. <laughs> Um, I have put in back little little stories, as in my character saying it was like the time he. That's normally when I sort of think, well, the story's going to run out before the five thousand words. <laughs> I need a couple of little stories to come in there, so it doesn't have any influence on the character at all. Possibly the same publisher. I came under huge pressure to to write a potted summary of the first book when I was writing the second, and I really, really didn't want to. I was quite sure that they stood alone as stories. There's a couple of years between the, the two books, and I tried to fob them off with one scene from the intervening period of time that would show where the characters had come from and how they'd moved on and what might be the underlying basis to where I was beginning in the next one. I'm not sure if they thought it really worked, but I did. But yeah, you do have to deal with your publisher. Publishers have different preferences over those kind of things. What, what was reader feedback on that? Did you get any? Um, the reader feedback was generally that they liked it, but they wanted that bit to be longer. They wanted to see more of those two years, and I thought, damn, if I hadn't given them any of it, they wouldn't have needed more of it. But yeah, I mean, it's hard to satisfy all those things that you need to balance, isn't it? I mean, one of the frustrating things with a series is I was in Tasmania last week, at a festival and all the kids wanted and all the bookshops and publishers I mean all the bookshops and the festival people couldn't get episode one of either of my series <laughs> and that's the one I was using as a demonstration and everyone go oh and it was out of print basically and the publishers have let the first one go out of print and they've still got the rest of the series and it's like really yeah, I did end up in a difficult situation with my trilogy where the rights were owned by three different publishing companies, oh, and so to try and coordinate anything with that was appalling. We managed to get them all back into one publishing company now. But, I mean, it's great when they get sold on to other people, but if you end up with that, it's, yeah, difficulties of the industry. Um, one of the things I hope that we might talk about that might be useful for people in the audience who are looking at writing in this kind of area is whether there are ways that we each have or techniques or software or whatever that help you keep tabs on a series because it, you, can, you can forget from the beginning to the end if you're writing a, over a number of years, you, you might forget a little detail and I know I've talked to writers who are really successful with really popular series who constantly get letters from readers saying, did you know that in book 17 such and such happens and in book 2 that actually wouldn't happen because they, they were related to, you know, and all those tiny minute little details. 
Do we have ways of trying to manage the information you need to keep in your head for the entire series? So the take-home message I'll give you today is do some record-keeping, people. That way you don't have to, mm, just from the example of a friend, um, have to read your own books again to find out what you've written. <laughs> um, so yes, I do wish I had at the outset had a cheat sheet, as it were, with a few details about characters from the basics, hair colour, the appearance names, the dog, um, to quote someone, say, you know, what arm they had their tattoo on. Um, <laughs> little details like that. It if the dog saves, dies. And, yeah, yeah, if the dog <laughs> dies or turns miraculously into a cat. But, um, you know, little details like that, it just saves you a lot of time. Because sometimes when you are thinking that, I think, oh, God, what is that? I know I have to get that right. And then you start obsessing over that more than the actual flow of the story. It breaks your writing flow. So, yeah, I, from now on, I've promised myself I'm going to make friends with Excel and I'm going to have um, summary sheets. Uh, some authors can do an amazing job. I interviewed Diana Gabaldon, you know, the Outlander series. Any of you have read that? You know how many characters there are in those? And I, I asked her in the interview, I said, how do you remember everybody? Do you write notes and things? Like, oh, no, I just remember. And I was gobsmacked. She's clearly got a better brain than I do. You need your books illustrated. <laughs> Mandy, what's your approach? Um, I don't, I don't use like a program, although I know a lot of people use things like Scrivener. Um, I've just, I'm not that techy and it takes me, it would take me longer to learn how to use it than to write the bloody book. So I'm just going to stick with, you know, notes. But I try and keep notes about those kind of technical things if I can. People's names and ages and when they were born because those are the things that you can trip up on really easily. But I do, I, I often spend time leafing back through stuff to figure it out. And but it's always harder to find than you think it should be. It is, but it's, I mean, it's not that hard. It's, it's there somewhere. So, yeah. Yeah, I've only ever had one, um, I got an email once from a, a boy who was seven. No, he is seven now, he's five and a half. Because I know, because he wrote, Dear Kyle, I loved your Dinosaur Rescue series, but it is not a um, Brontosaurus. It is an Apatosaurus. Because scientists discovered in 19 something that, that there was a, they thought it was a Brontosaurus, but it was actually an Apatosaurus. <laughs> so then, could you please change your story to, to have Apatosauruses? And it signed Hugo five and a half. And then um, a year and a half later, of course, they discovered that Apatosaurus was a different thing. There was a Brontosaurus. And you wrote back to him. I did. <laughs> I did dedicate my next book to Hugo, um, who uh, the the Brontosaurus, <laughs> Apatosaurus <laughs> expert. <laughs> um, I'm going to ask each of you to come up with a rapid fire piece of advice for someone looking at writing a series. One, two, three pieces of advice, whatever you like, but let's just see what we come up with. Okay, Bandit. for me, um, one of the things I wanted to say, um, when I wrote the Sam Shepard series, I wrote her in first person. Uh, when I did that first book, it never occurred to me how difficult it is to maintain a first person narrative across a large number of books. So have a good think what, um, what angle or perspective you're gonna write your books on at the outset, so that you're not doing things fly by the seat of your pants, that you, again, just so that you have an idea of what you're getting yourself in for. Because um, some forms of writing are difficult to sustain over the long period. Um, 
I think probably the, the kind of series I've done is very different from that. So I would say um, plan it, actually plan it, and know how you can kind of shape it each story so that you've not only got a kind of arc within each book, but across the three books. Um, and think it right through. Um, I personally would even say know how it ends so that you can write towards it. Otherwise, you get to that middle book and it, and it's kind of like the middle year of being trained in something. It's just you want to kill yourself. So um, I think planning really helps. And um, I, I do think that it's a really interesting thing to do to carry a story over that long. So I don't, I don't regret it at all because it's really interesting finding that much story and really digging into character. But it's a lot of work. That would that would be all I would say. So just be aware of it. Yeah, mine would be um, don't plan your stories. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's just secondary because I think the spontaneity in junior fiction is important. You have to basically have your go. But the number one primary thing I would say was have a strong concept. It has to be a big concept, which is focused. A focused, huge concept, like a Neanderthal boy with a big brain who's evolved. For example, it's a simple, but it's actually quite a, a big concept, which allows you to expand in all sorts of reasons, or shape-shifting dragons. You can then sort of imagine all these stories start coming into your head. So just from the concept, you can just continue with your series. And I'm going to say, Mandy, plan it. Mandy and I don't agree on the standalone. I'm really a fan of the organic approach for myself for a standalone novel, but I don't think it's possible to write series trilogies without some degree of planning. You do need to have the arc for each book and the arc that will hold it all together, so I'm, I, I definitely think there's a role there's for, a challenge can I, for you can guys. I, can I put out a plea about planning? Because, I mean, I, I watch people write novels every year at Pitirea, and I know that a lot of people think that, that planning kills creativity, but I would like to say that planning enables creativity. Because if you haven't planned and you don't know where you're going, think of it as, as if you're driving, you spend your entire time looking at where you're going to put your feet so you don't fall over and you don't notice anything around you. You're not being creative, you're just kind of moving through plodding. Whereas if you kind of know where you're aiming, that frees up your mind to find the much more creative stuff that, that colours it in. So that's my little plug for planning. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, by not planning, I always have a, an end point. Yeah, yeah I think How they yeah. get there yeah, is the spontaneity of it. You're planning. It is. I mean, that's, not. But that's what it is. That, that is what planning is. Clearly it's there are degrees of planning. <laughs> I'd also say keep good records, keep the details, because it's the, it's the tiny, minute little details that are the things that you forget and then have to go and hunt for. It's not the obvious thing of, you know, how tall your character is or, or, you know, how they like to eat breakfast at 10 in the morning. You know, it's the, it's the tiny little things that you'll suddenly find, oh, God, was that? Was that in the, the room on the left-hand side or was it on the right-hand I'll have to find where the door was. I can't have them, you know, walking different doors. It's keep lots of records if you're doing series. And um, avoid dumping backstory. You know, of course you need a little, but just don't do the dump of in everything you need to know to read this book is bleh, just stay away from it. Keep your backstory as honed back, as minute as you can. Assume that your character steps into the world that, that they are in 
and that you don't need to tell them any your reader any more about it. Your reader is there, they will understand that world through being in that world. That would be my key bit of advice. Have you ever, ever realised that you've forgotten something or changed something like John Marsden said about the you know, brother becoming a sister or whatever it was and have you ever sort of gone through your series and suddenly thought, actually, that was a rhododendron outside the door before in the last book? Um, I, I haven't, um, not that I'm aware of or that any reader has picked up or emailed me yet because believe me, they do email you if you do do boo-boos. Um, so I haven't done that as yet, but it is something that I think all oh, could happen, which is why I'm going to start making records. Um, I've, I've had that until, right up until the final proofs when suddenly you say, oh, shit, she was 15 there and now she's 16 and you've missed it. So, so that's, you know, that's why proofreading and other people reading is so important because you kind of, your brain tells you that you've done it right and you just miss it. So yeah, it's really easy. Mm, I had a character who was working in one casualty clearing station and then she was working in another. And um, that was picked up on the very final, by me, not by the professional proofreaders, but it was picked up right at the final stage. So, yeah, it can easily happen. Proof, proof, proof. Edit, edit, edit. Questions? Does anybody ever find themselves in a situation where the, the character is reacting or behaving in a particular way in, say, book three, that's based on an experience they had in book one? And readers may not know about all that, and you know, and that's something that has to be either built in or not built in, or, or whatever. Um, do, does anybody have, has anybody come up against that, or do you just choose to avoid those sorts of situations with your characters? I think that's all part of um, character development and what I was talking about before, and that in every book uh, or every experience that you have will then inform or um, be influence, influence something that you do in the future. And I think that readers inherently understand that. So you don't need to be blatant and point these things out. But um, you know, when you're writing, you know what you've written in the past about this this person, um, or there may be even a specific reference to it. Um, you do get references in crime fiction in particular where um, people will be talking about cases that have happened in the past, and some authors are clever enough and they plan enough in advance to um, actually bring back old cases into new cases, in which case in crime fiction you could actually do that legitimately. But um, try not to do it, obviously. You do want to make sure that that is uh uh, experience-driven character development, not a plot-driven yeah. thing. It's not just because it suits your plot in book three. So, you know, just be wary about what's causing you to suddenly throw a change in. How, how many people have got a series on the go? <laughs> or think they've got a series in them? Most of you. Good. Fools, fools. No, no, good, good. That run. Flee. <laughs> Clearly it works better in some genres than other, and you know what genre you're working in, so you can take those comments. I mean, junior fiction is actually, they're not really, you can't find many standalone novels. I mean, 12-year-old now, it's actually becoming more standalone novels are coming out again. But, um, you know, you can't get anything published for six- to eight-year-olds. It's not junior uh, under series. 
unless you don't ask, unless you're my yeah. children with such pride carry a pile of books out of the mm. library all in one series for them to read yeah. over the weekend and they just think they're real readers because they can take 10 books out I mean that's part of the appeal isn't yeah. it for and my readers always have I always like the fact that my readers collect the books the series they stack them nicely on a shelf <laughs> And they read through Make sure them, the spines are pretty. And, yeah, and read back and read through the series again and again and again, which is quite a nice. All, all, all those people that put their hands up, would you tell us why? Because I'd be really interested to know whether it was something that you yeah, planned why? or whether it's something that it's just kind of <coughs> developed. It would be really fascinating. You can't be stuck in Guantanamo Bay forever. <laughs> He's got to come home. Why can't he come home in one book? Um, Taking too long to get there. <laughs> and I got to the end of the first one and suddenly realised there was no story. Um, so there had to be a book two, and then I finished book two, and unfortunately there has to be a book three now too. <laughs> and I'm going to say to that, to anybody who finds himself in that situation, that might be absolutely the right decision, but it also might be that those books need editing and they won't end up as three books. Who knows? They, they, I had an editor come on board after book one who was editing, and she is pushing. She was one of the ones who's driving me to do book three. Um, I, this, it, it has been quite um, pushed by the readers. They, they wanted more, mm -hmm. um, and they've all said to me, this can't be the last book. So I had, yeah, they've been mm. following on because of that. And, and there's one of the points. Readers are bossy. Um, well, mine was a publisher who said that um, I should be interested in a series. So um, I wrote the first two books, and then she went out of business. And then I read, wrote the third one just because, you know. Anyway, anybody want to publish them? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Any further questions? I think, I think series are actually the the. It's a bit, um, what do you call it? There's a word, there's a grown-up word for this. <laughs> I don't know. But when basically, because you get into it and you're really enjoying it and you love your character, you have an idea where it's going and you feel like you could just go on forever like Andy Griffiths. And, and, but you, then they say, stop. And you go, but everyone loves him. <laughs> oh, I love him, I want to keep going. And they say, no, no, that's it. And you sort of have to kill, you know, they're, still, they're not dead, but they're... And you think, that's just really, well, there's a tragic word for that. And that's not allowed to happen. You just have to self-publish. Oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> I also think that it is really good to leave your readers wanting more. That's a great thing. I love it when you people know, say, you know oh, write another one, I want to hear what happens, and I think... <clears throat> Make up what happens. I'm not writing another one of that. You don't want six-year-olds making You want them to love your characters. You want them to wish that there was more. That was the highlight of reading when I was a kid, that you get, you slow down the reading as you get to the last couple of pages because you want to get to the end, but you don't want to say goodbye to those characters. That's the way you want your readers to feel at the end of every book that you write. You want them to want more. That doesn't mean you have to give them more. It's up to you. Thank you, and I hope you found that useful. Thanks to our panellists, Vanda Simon, Mandy Hager, Kyle Mewburn, and I'm Anna McKenzie. New Zealand Society of Authors, Tipune Kaituhi o Aotearoa, Pen NZ Incorporated, is the principal organisation representing writers in New Zealand. 
we want to continue to provide opportunities for you to grow in your professional development. That's why we've started NZSA Web Workshops. Visit our website, authors.org.nz, to find out about these opportunities. Experienced writers and teachers will lead them, and we hope that they help you to grow as a writer and face whatever tomorrow brings. Our website again is authors.org.nz.